Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Heavenly Father, um, we just ask for your blessing uh, on our service together today. Uh, we, just, we just pray that your word will shine through and that you would teach us what you would want us to, to hear this morning. And we just ask again for your presence and blessing on this worship time together. And may it glorify you in your name. Amen. If you'd please turn to Ruth chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Good morning again. Good to be together on this summer morning. Great to see you. We are going to finish Ruth chapter 3 this morning. Um, if you're visiting with us today, I don't know if we have any first-time visitors, we've been studying through Ruth together this summer, and uh, we have two more sermons after this one in Ruth, and so we'll do that in the first half of August. If anybody wonders where we're going after that, back to Hebrews. So uh, we got about halfway through Hebrews this spring, and I'm determined to get through the other half in the fall. So we're actually going to start in August to give us enough weeks to do that. So, But Ruth this morning, Ruth chapter 3. And uh, let, let's pray, and we'll get right, in, right into the text. Lord, we thank you for the, the joy of gathering as brothers and sisters for the opportunity to be the family of God uh, gathered and to hear your word together. And so we would pray, just as we look to you now, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of each and every one of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this because of and in the name of our rock and our redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Most people enjoy stories about inspiring acts of character. Uh, I read a story like that just this last week about uh, President George Bush. Uh, this was the older Bush, the first Bush, uh, the one who was president from 1989 to 1993. And the story goes a few years after uh, he was out of office. So after Bush was out of office, he and his wife, Barbara, uh, took a trip to Hawaii and uh, one morning, uh, so ex-president, former president, uh, kind of in his retirement life now, one morning the, the two of them uh, got up really early and they went for a walk on the beach there in Hawaii. And uh, as I say, it was really early, the sun had just come up. And, and so it was just them, no reporters, no journalists, nobody taking tr track of it. It was just him, Barbara, and two Secret Service agents. They, you always got those guys with you, I guess. And so the two of them were walking, and while they were walking, uh, no, nobody was out yet. It was that early. Uh, they encountered something that someone had carved into the sand. And it wasn't just a little thing. Someone had taken a lot of effort to carve a big, elaborate picture in the sand. And what it was was a swastika. Someone had carved a large swastika into the, into the sand, and inside of that swastika was a Star of David. So they'd probably actually done the Star of David, the symbol of Israel first, and then a big swastika, the symbol of the, of the Nazi party. When Bush saw that, he was infuriated. And some of you might remember that long before he was ever president, he had actually been a combat pilot back in World War II, and, and he knew people personally who had lost their lives uh, fighting against Nazi Germany. And so it was really personal for him. Uh, several years later, he told a biographer, I got so mad. 
I got so mad, he said I was almost crying. Now, at that point, a lot of people would have just kept going, kind of, and then gone about their business. I'm sure that's what the Secret Service agents wanted him to do. Uh, You know how those guys are. They're always so careful about everything. But uh, he didn't keep going. He actually, I I don't know where he got it, but he, he took a rake. I don't know if somebody had left a rake around or whatever, but he found a rake. And there he was in his 70s, I think he would have been in his 70s at that time, former president of the United States, all by himself, went through and systematically wiped that thing away. He just went through and it took him a little bit of time because it was so big and he got rid of that ugly, ugly symbol. This morning we're going to talk about another example of, of inspiring character. This one comes from our friend Boaz. Uh, Boaz, as you know by now, is the main character in, uh, the main male character, I should specify, uh, in the book of Ruth. And when we left off last week, we kind of did chapter 3, part 1 last week. When we left off last week, uh, this woman, a young widow named Ruth, had approached Boaz. She had come to him in the middle of the night, and she had, somewhat in, an, in a somewhat unorthodox way, she had asked him to marry her. Right? So she had proposed marriage to him. Uh, today, we're going to finish the conversation we started last week. And, and what I mean by that is last week, we, we used a lot of our time, just because it took a while to explain it all, we took a lot of our time to describe the moral ambiguity uh, of this chapter. Uh, and again, I, the characters don't sin, which is actually why it stands out. The characters don't sin, but the things that are going on in this chapter raise a few eyebrows. And so just to recap, for, for the, just to refresh our memories, um, we, we talked about the plan itself. This plan that Naomi and Ruth uh, come up with uh, is a questionable plan. It's questionable because it involves a woman in a very traditional culture uh, going to a man and proposing marriage to him. And, and it just wasn't done that way. It just wasn't done that way. And so it's, it's the plan itself is somewhat socially inappropriate. Uh, we talked about how the loqu- location was ambiguous and questionable. Uh, Ruth doesn't just approach him in the middle of the day when there's lots of witnesses around. She goes to him uh, at the threshing floor in the middle of the night. And we talked about how that was not a, 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 the sort of thing a respectable woman in that culture would do. In fact, the evidence we have is that the only women you'd find at a threshing floor in the middle of the night at that time in history and in that place were, were prostitutes. And so it's very questionable for Ruth, this single woman, to, to go to the threshing floor in the middle of the night. Anyone who sees her is going to go, what are you doing? What are you doing? And then we talked about the meeting itself, this meeting that takes place between uh, Ruth and Boaz. Uh, It also just falls into some questionable areas. They don't sin, but it falls into some questionable areas. Uh, They're alone. It's a man and a woman. They're not married to each other. They're alone in the dark in the middle of the night. And that's questionable in most human cultures, but especially in theirs, especially in theirs. And yet they did not sin. They did not sin in the midst of all that. And that's the part we're going to focus on this morning. The character of these two people, both Boaz and Ruth, the character of both of these people shines like a lamp in the darkness here in Ruth chapter 3. And actually really in this whole book. I, I remember in the, in the introductory sermon to this series emphasizing how there's all these different themes. And one of them is just character and biblical manhood and womanhood. That shines through in the stuff we want to talk about today. Uh, their, their character shines through. And this is helpful for you and me, right? So this is helpful for us because the world we live in is a lot like the one we encounter in Ruth chapter 3. It's a morally ambiguous world. Sometimes the right thing to do is obvious, right? We, we love it when that happens. It's, 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 it's just obvious what we're supposed to do sometimes. But sometimes it isn't. 
Sometimes we got we to gotta bring godliness and gospel and wisdom and grace and all kinds of other things to the situation to try to figure it out. Sometimes it's not obvious what we should do, like in Ruth 3. Let me give you an example. This one goes way back, but hopefully some of the younger people can connect with this one. But way back when I was in college, uh, my, my Christian friends and I was part of an intervarsity group. And those were really where my tightest friends were, people I spent the most time with. Uh, my, my Christian friends and I had this ongoing debate about parties. Uh, and I went to, for those who don't know, I went to a secular school in Massachusetts, kind of, you know, if you've got Bible colleges, this is the opposite of a Bible college, very secular school. And uh, like most schools in that category, there were lots of parties. And just to, we're all, so we're all on the same page. When I say parties, I don't mean board games and snacks. I mean, uh, I mean uh, drinking parties, right? That, that, it's that kind of a thing. And there were lots of those at the school. Basically, it started on Thursday evenings. Uh, really ambitious people, I suppose, started Wednesdays, but tend to be Thursdays and run all the way through the weekend. And the debate among us believers was, should Christians go? Should Christians go? Should a follower of Jesus ever go to a party where you know many people are there to get drunk and to hook up? Should Christians go? Some said yes. Some said, yeah, you know, I don't drink. I'm not there to hook up, but, but that's where my non-Christian friends are. Right? How can I show these people that I care about them, that I want to be part of their lives if I avoid half the week with them? Right? That's where my friends are. Uh, others said, no, 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 we shouldn't even be seen in those places. We need, to, we need to stand out. We need to show the world that Christians are different. Right? We're not just a moralistic version of the same thing or whatever it might be. We need to show we're different. That was the debate. That was the debate 30 years ago. They're probably still debating it today because there's no easy answer to that, right? There's no black and white answer. And maybe you, you lean one way or the other. I do too. But, but, but there's no straightforward because both sides had helpful points, biblical points to add to the discussion. And, and the truth is, it's not just a young person thing. You say, well, my college years are way behind me. Yeah, me too. But, but it doesn't go away when we're adults. Uh, in, the, in the first church that I pastored, one of our elders, one of the elders of our church, uh, was, was an attorney. He was, a, he was an attorney, and he specialized in family law. Right? And so he was always having to deal with these morally ambiguous areas. Every, every time a new client came in the door, he was having to make judgment calls and moral decisions. And can I represent this person? It, 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 was, a, it was a huge part of his work as a Christian believer uh, who, who was also an attorney, who was a lawyer. And this is the question I want us to ask of Ruth chapter 3 this morning. What do you and I do in situations like that? How do we hold on to our Christian character in a morally ambiguous world? And the answer for us is to do what Boaz does. Right? The answer we find in this chapter, everything has more answers, but the answer in this chapter is we should choose what's right, determined to choose what's right, especially when we're faced with opportunities to do what's wrong. That's what Boaz does here in Ruth chapter 3. I want to use uh, most of the rest of our time to think through some principles for doing this. I actually see three that I want to draw your attention to, and so our main outline today is to talk about three principles for choosing what's right when we have opportunities, especially when we have opportunity to right there in front of us, like we see in this chapter, right there in front of us to do what's wrong. Before we look at those three principles, though, I have, I have a, a caution uh, I want to spend a couple of minutes on here. I, I, there's a caution I want us to, to have in mind as we go through this. And the caution is simply that moral ambiguity is not the same thing as openly sinful situations. And I think it's important for us to realize that. Moral ambiguity is not the same as, as sin, openly obvious sinful situations. To say it another way, not every moral area is a gray area. 
Right? And there are many in our culture who would argue exactly that. Right? It's kind of a majority view, actually, in our culture today. Any moral question is a gray area. You say this, I say that. Every moral question is, a, is an ambiguous question. That's what some people would say. I want, to, I want you to hear that that is not what we're saying this morning when we start talking about kind of morally ambiguous situations that we might find ourselves in. Uh, that's, that's, we're not saying that everything is like that. Every moral choice is not like that. Some moral choices really are clear, right? And this is where we come back to the scripture. Some moral choices are very, very clear what we're supposed to do. I'll give you another example. The, the classic biblical example uh, is, uh, is Joseph. And there's, there's many in the scriptures, but I was thinking about Joseph because his situation is somewhat like Boaz's. Uh, I think of Joseph. So Joseph from Genesis, Genesis chapter 39. And it's what Joseph does when Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. And if you don't remember the story, just write down Genesis 39 in your notes. Go read the whole chapter later this afternoon. It's a great, uh, great account of, of faithfulness. Uh, Genesis 39. But the key in that story is that when Potiphar's wife, so his boss, really his master, because he's a servant, Joseph's master is this guy named Potiphar. Potiphar's got a wife who takes a liking to Joseph. And she comes to him and she says, come to bed with me. Just a brazen proposition. Come to bed with me. When she says that, it's not morally ambiguous. Right? Joseph doesn't say, well, how about if we just have dinner together? Right? He's not looking for a moral compromise. He doesn't say, let's just exchange numbers and flirt back and forth with text messages. No, he, he runs. Do you remember? It's the classic. Genesis 39, 12. He left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. Sometimes it's like that. Uh, years ago, um, this was back when I, again, when I was in Connecticut, I was part of a pastor's group. And uh, one, of the, one of the guys in the group told a, told a story about a woman in his previous church. So this, this had actually happened in a rural place where he had been a different place. He was in this small church. He said he was the lead guy. And there was a woman in the church who uh, kept coming on to him. She, 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 she was attracted to him, I guess, and she, she kept uh, behaving inappropriately to him. And he didn't really go into any details. Uh, instead, what he told us was that it got to the point in his relationship with this woman that when he would see her car pull into the church parking lot, he would leave the building. This little rural church that he was the pastor of had like a back door, and I think it had a parsonage, so the back door would lead to the parsonage. And whenever, if he was alone in the church, when this woman's car would pull into the parking lot, he'd get up from his desk, hit the back door, and leave the building. Sometimes that's what you got to do, right? It was kind of this shocking story to all of us, but it's like, yeah, what else are you going to do? Sometimes if if you're going to keep your character clean, you just have to get out of there as fast as you can. Think about Boaz, right? We'll, get, we'll, we'll finish the caution in just a moment here. Uh, think about Boaz. We, we noted last week that Boaz is alarmed, right? Here you see his character. He is alarmed when he wakes up in the middle of the night and he realizes there's a woman at his feet and he doesn't know who she is. I mean, it's maybe he, he knows it's a woman, like behold a woman, it says in the text. First thing he says is, who are you? Who are you? This mystery woman's answer is going to determine what he does in the next 10 seconds. Right? What she says is going to answer. If she says, I'm here to keep you company, big boy, he's gone. Right? He's going to do just like Joseph. He's going to run. But that's not what the story's about. Right? You and I know because we've read it. Instead, she says, I'm Ruth. And he goes, oh, Ruth. Yeah. And she says, I'm Ruth, and I want you to redeem me by spreading your, your wings or your, the corner of your garment of protection over my life. 
And because she answers that way, because there's something good, this isn't a, a, a sinful situation. We're again, we're back in that first category. Because this is something good that's at the center of what's going on here, he's going to handle it the way we talk about today. Right? So that's that caution needed to be mentioned. We're not saying, hey, it's okay to flirt with sin. We're not saying that we should intentionally put ourselves in compromising situations. We should not intentionally put ourselves in compromising situations. But life is messy. Talked about that last week. Life is messy. Sometimes we find ourselves in those situations. Anyway, today what we're talking about is what we do when we, when we are, when we do face those kinds of things. So now, with all that in mind, now we can look at those principles. Let's look at those uh, three principles for choosing what's right when we have the possibility, the opportunity to do wrong. Number one, uh, the first principle for choosing what's right is to prioritize the Lord. Prioritize Him. This is the first line of defense for Boaz. It's where he starts, and it's where we need to start too. Put the Lord first. So verse 9, I'm gonna, I asked John to, uh, yeah, to start from verse 14, but I want to back up to 9. Uh, in verse 9, Boaz wakes up, and as I just said, he realizes there's a woman sleeping at his feet. He doesn't recognize her. He doesn't know who she is. Uh, and so he says, who are you? And, and, you, know, you know, how does he know even it's a woman? Maybe it's the gentleness of her breathing. Maybe he can smell her perfume. He knows it's a woman, but he doesn't know who. So who are you? She says, I'm Ruth. I'm Ruth, spread your wings over your servant. And uh, let me just, I, I mentioned this last week, I mentioned it again today, let me explain it now. Um, she is asking him to marry her. You say, well, how do you know she's asking him to marry her? She said wings, <laughs> spread your wings. Or another translation you might be looking at says, spread the corner of your garment. Uh, what does that got to do with marriage? Well, what it's got to do with marriage is that it is an idiom for marriage. It's a Hebrew uh, way of saying, you know, will you marry me? Or describing more often, it's the man is the verb, uh, is, the, is the actor, and he will uh, spread the corner of his garment or spread his wings of protection over a particular woman. It's, it's how marriage is described. If you say, what's the diff- why wings in some translations, garment in the others? Uh, it's actually the same Hebrew word. It can be used for either one. We've got lots of words like that in English, right, where the same word can mean this or that, um, and it's like that in Hebrew, and so you just have to figure it out from the context. Is it spread the, spread the wings of protection, like, you know, birds have wings, but if you picture a big flowing garment, that corner would be like a wing, so that, that's why it's the same Hebrew word, that's why you get those differences in translation, but either way, it's an idiom for marriage, and there's actually, I'm not going to turn to it and read it just for time's sake, um, but uh, Ezekiel 16 also, it's a rather striking chapter. If you want to go read Ezekiel 16, um, it's, a, it's a, a passage where this very same idiom is used. He, Ezekiel 16, verse 8. God says he spread the corner of his garment or the protection of his wings over Israel. By, and it's a, he, he marries Israel. He makes Israel his bride. And, and there are other examples. That Ezekiel one is just a good one. So just to look up Ezekiel 16, 8, and you'll see another place where the same wording is used. So, so he, when she says this, he knows, okay, this isn't an immoral woman. This, this is Ruth, right? And that puts him in a whole other category of things. Now, this is that young woman from the fields. This, this is Ruth. Now, look at the first thing. When he realizes who this is, look at the first thing he says to her. It's verse 10. It's the next verse. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. So who, is the, who are you? She talks. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. That statement tells us two things. Right? It's two things that statement tells us. The first, the first is that Boaz feels pretty good about the prospect here. 
I, I think this is a, there's a personal sense in this. Boaz appreciates the possibility. In fact, I'm going to say he's excited. I think he's enthusiastic about the possibility of marrying Ruth. This is where we see some of the tenderness and even the romance of the book of Ruth. And I, I said, in, again, in that introductory sermon, uh, I haven't really emphasized it much up to this point, but Ruth is a love story. This book is a, a biblical love story, and it helps us, it gives us categories to think about our own love stories. Uh, and, and so this is where we see some of this. We've seen some of it before too, but, but I think we see it really well here. Think back, right? So let's just, we're going to use our sanctified imagination a little bit to try to enter into the text. Think back to how Boaz treated Ruth the first day he met her. Remember that from chapter two? He was kind to her. He was generous with her. He was thoughtful of her needs. He brings her over, gives her some of his, his own team's water, even though she doesn't work for him. He welcomes her, even though she's a foreigner from a people group that the Israelites don't get along so well with. Uh, And so he's generous. He welcomes her. That's just the first day when he doesn't even know her, right? He he had to ask, you know, actually it's interesting. Twice in this book, he has to ask who she is. Uh, Who is she? Remember that from chapter two? He doesn't even know who she is and he's being generous and thoughtful toward her. But then at the end of that chapter, you'll remember, uh, it says she kept coming back because he invited her to keep coming back for the rest of the harvest, Several more weeks, maybe even a couple of months, she keeps coming back to the same fields, to Boaz's fields. She's working in his, his part of the field. It's actually one big field that would have been shared and, and partied up, uh, parted up. And so she keeps coming back to his section of the field. And, and we find ourselves wondering, right? As we, as we meditate on this passage, we find ourselves wondering, what other interactions might they have had? What other interactions? Did they have any more conversations? Or did they never talk again? Right after that first day where he invites her over to eat, did they never talk again? Did they have any more conversations? Were there any warm smiles exchanged across the barley field? Did, did, did Boaz notice how, how lovely she looked, how hard she was working, what an industrious woman she was? Did, did Ruth notice how confident Boaz was as he directed his team and just kind of took charge of things, how generous he was with his workers too? It wasn't just the, the young women. He was generous and open to everybody. Did she notice that? Was he attracted to her? Was she attracted to him? We, we can't say for sure, but I think it seems reasonable to think that, that there was some of that stuff going on. And a lot of other commentators tend to think so too. It's, it's very reasonable to think that, that chapter three doesn't take place in a vacuum, that there's been something already growing in those, in those weeks uh, during the harvest. Uh, somebody asked me recently if, if Boaz was already married. It was a great question. It was Boaz already married? And, and the answer is, theoretically, it's possible. It's actually theoretically possible that he was. Uh, Boaz could have had a wife, and in this case, Ruth would be a second wife. And we, we know enough about the, uh, the leveret marriage, the kinsman-redeemer thing, that the, that would be possible. To, in order to protect this family's land, he, could have a, he would take a second wife. So it's possible Ruth would be a second wife to the wife he already has. It doesn't read that way, though. Right? There's never a mention of a, of a first wife. There's no sense in which he's, he's got another woman in his mind. Verse 10, if you read verse 10, I think it sounds like a guy in love. <laughs> Bless you, my daughter. Right, you you, you, you could have had all those young guys, and instead you went for me. Right, this old guy, we don't know how old they were, but he's probably in his 40s, 50s. She's probably in her 20s, has probably had to think about it. 
He sounds like a guy in love, and, and, and so he's enthusiastic. And so you see that. That's the first thing you see. So I said there were two things you see in this statement when he says, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. The second thing, the second thing this statement shows us is actually the more important one for my point. And it's that Boaz immediately, but you need that romance part so we understand why he would do it. Boaz immediately puts his relationship with Ruth in the context of his relationship with the Lord. He puts God first. first. First words out of his mouth, he puts God first. The first thing he says is, may the Lord bless you, my daughter. And I think that statement, that choice to begin there, uh, before he talks about any what ifs and hows and all the rest of it, uh, you know, it's, it's may the Lord, he brings the Lord into the center of this, of this whole thing. And so there's a principle there for us, right? The, the sta- that statement points us to an important principle for all the gray areas we face. We may never face one like Boaz and Ruth are facing here, but it, it applies to all the gray areas we face. Put the Lord first, right? So in that business situation that's tricky or that relationship we're not supposed to be in or whatever it is, put the Lord first. Make pleasing Jesus the first and highest priority. And then all the other pieces will start to click into place. I mentioned the story of Joseph a few minutes ago. Joseph from, Je- uh, from Genesis 39. Joseph has the same approach to his own situation, right? It's hundreds of years earlier, but it's the same approach. When Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, Joseph specifically tells her he cannot go along because of the Lord, right? It's not, I'm afraid we'll get caught. It's because of the Lord. I'm, I'm going to read it. I'll go back to Genesis 39 in case we haven't read it in a while. I'll just read three verses here. So this is Genesis 39. I'm picking up in the middle of verse 6. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. He's a good-looking guy. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. Potiphar had put Joseph in charge of all of his money, all his wealth, all the other servants, everything. He has no concern about anything. He's put everything he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am. He means I can do anything he does, right? That's how much authority Joseph's been given. Nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you're his wife. Here's the key. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? How can I do this wickedness and sin against God? So Joseph, you see it, he's committed to doing the right thing by Potiphar. Potiphar's is his master, his boss. He's committed to doing the right thing by Potiphar, but why? His reason is the Lord. He's going to do the right thing by Potiphar because he's committed to doing the right thing by the Lord. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? You almost get the impression that if it weren't for the Lord, if Joseph were just a pagan, he might have gone for it. He He may well have gone for it, but because of the Lord, because of the Lord, Joseph's going to choose to do what's right. We see the same thing here with Boaz. Same thing with Boaz. Now, of course, it's, it's different in that Ruth is not trying to seduce, uh, be clear on that, uh, Ruth is not trying to seduce uh, Boaz. That's different from Joseph. But they both have the same God-first approach. Right? So Boaz is about to begin a relationship. We'll see that as we keep reading, because Boaz is interested, and, and they are going to end up getting married. And so where does their whole relationship ever start? God-first. Prioritize the Lord. That helps us. We need to have that same commitment in our own minds. We need to commit to putting the Lord first in all the ambiguous situations, whether they're uh, relational ones, business ones, school-related ones, whatever it might be. And here's one more tip on this one. Don't wait until the temptation gets there to decide. 
That's so important. Uh, decide in advance. Right? Decide in advance. Decide ahead of time that pleasing the Lord, doing what's right in His eyes, is more important than anything else. So that's principle number one. Prioritize the Lord. Number two, the second principle that helps us choose what's right is to protect your integrity. We need to, again, and it's, a, it's one of those decide up front kind of a thing so that we're ready when the time comes, but protect your integrity. Uh, see, here's the thing. Uh, sometimes with these gray areas that we face, sometimes it's, it's very tempting to take shortcuts, right? Especially when, it, when it's not clear cut, when the situation is, is uh, ambiguous, questionable. It's very tempting to, to, to bend the rules to our own favor, that temptation is there for Boaz. And it's actually, it's not has, it doesn't have to do with Ruth per se. It has to do with this other guy we're going to talk about in just a second. But there's a great temptation here for Boaz to bend the rules, to cheat, if you will. And he's not going to. He's going to choose to take the high road. He's going to choose to, take his, to protect his own integrity, even if it's going to cost him. He's prepared to pay the cost and protect his integrity. We see this as, as we keep reading. Let me explain. So, so verse 10, I've argued that uh, Boaz is, is, is pleased at the prospect of marrying Ruth. There's no sense in which he's like, well, if I have to. You know, he's, he is pleased at the possibility of, raising, of, of, of marrying her. Uh, so much so that he says yes. He actually says yes in, in verse 11 as we keep reading. And so he says there in uh, verse 11, uh, And now, my daughter, do not fear. So he's, he says the thing about, you know, may you be blessed. And then you chose me. So nice to be chosen. You chose me, he says. And then verse 11, and now my daughter, do not fear. And, and the daughter thing, please don't be thrown off by that. He's just acknowledging it is, uh, it is a gentle way of treating a younger woman, talking to a younger woman. And now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. He says, yes. He goes on record. Yes, Ruth, I would be delighted to take a, a godly, honorable woman like you to be my wife. That is why verses 12 and 13 come as such a surprise. For many people, this is a familiar story, so we lose the surprise sometimes because we know what's coming next. But if you read verses 10 and 11, and then you read 12 and 13, you're like, what? (laughs) What are you doing, Boaz? What are you doing? Because he tells us that he wants to marry her, and then he immediately undermines his own chances of doing so. He immediately undercuts himself. Verse 12. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet, there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. You would expect Boaz, based on verses 10 and 11, you'd expect Boaz to say, meet me at the church in a few hours. We'll be done with this by lunch. That's, That's what you would expect him to say. But instead, he brings in this other guy starts talking about this other guy. And so, yes, and and I think we're doing it next week, but it might be the week after I want to explain a little more about the kinsman redeemer thing uh, because it bears on when we get to the Christology at the end of the book. But again, the kinsman redeemer is someone who has a legal right uh, and and even a little bit of a responsibility to to marry uh, a widow to carry on that the family name when all the other men are are not of, around because they've died, and and so yes, Boaz is a kinsman redeemer, but he happens to know that there's another guy, there's one other guy who is technically ahead of him in line. He's he's a closer relation somehow or other 
second cousin once removed instead of second cousin twice removed, however all that works. But there's one other guy who is technically closer. And it's interesting. As the story unfolds, it almost seems like, the way it's presented to us, it seems like nobody else knows about this guy. You notice it's the first we've heard of him. First we heard of him. If Naomi, Naomi knows about him, she hasn't mentioned it. Right? It's almost like he, he hasn't existed up to this point. And, and so it, it's kind of hanging there. If, if Boaz doesn't bring him up, they can just move forward. But Boaz knows. Boaz knows he's there. And so what is Boaz going to do? Boaz is going, is going to make sure this guy gets his shot. Right? And so he knows somebody else has a, a stronger claim to Ruth. And here's another wrinkle in this thing. It's not just a claim to Ruth. It's a claim to the land. And that part's going to become front and center in, in chapter 4. Uh, this whole practice of, of the kinsman-redeemer marriage, um, you, you not only take on the, the deceased man's wife and raise a child in the deceased man's name, you also become, responsibility for his, become responsible for his property. And so you, you'll get some of the profit from that, although eventually it'll revert back to that family. And so there's land. Right? We can appreciate the value of that. There's land. There's farmland at stake. It's not just who gets to marry the girl, it's who gets to farm the land. And so there's land at stake here. And so Boaz, there's that piece as well. And again, Boaz is a man of character. He could take the shortcut. He could say, yeah, let's just go get this taken care of. Easier to ask ask forgiveness than it is to ask permission. Let's just go get this done. But no, even if it's going to hurt his own cause, he's going to make sure this is done the right way. He's going to make sure he does it with integrity. And it is. It's an example of integrity in action, the way he chooses to handle this whole thing with the other kinsman redeemer. Uh, integrity. What is integrity? Integrity is doing the right thing even when it might cost you. It's easy enough to do the right thing when you're going to get a gain from it, of course. But, but when it's going to cost you, when it might cost you money or cost you a relationship or whatever it is, uh, that's when, when we call it integrity. Well, that's what Boaz is going to do. He's going to put his integrity even above what he wants. He's going to put his his own uh, moral integrity above his desires. It might cost him the woman he wants to marry, but but that's how important it is to him. It might even cost him what he wants. Another president, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, before he became president, uh, Teddy Roosevelt was actually a rancher. Interesting guy, one of America's more interesting, uh, colorful presidents. Before he was a politician and all the rest, Teddy Roosevelt owned a ranch out west somewhere. And uh, one day he was out on the open range with his, his cowboys, his, his, his hired hands, and they were, um, they were, they were, they were um, gathering cattle, right? And so there was, uh, and they were on this one place that was kind of between, uh, it was, it was, it's hard to describe it, but basically they were, they were, one of his hired men lassoed a steer that based on where the steer was found should have belonged to the neighboring the neighboring rancher. The guy's name was Gregor Lang. And one of Teddy Roosevelt's cowboys lassoed this steer, brought it back to the camp. And the steer hadn't been branded yet, but where it had found meant that it should belong to Lang. Now, Roosevelt happened to be in the camp at that point, and he saw what was happening. He saw that this cowboy brought the steer back, and the cowboy actually brought it over, and he was about to brand it. He'd got a brand out, and he was about to put Teddy Roosevelt's brand on this steer that should have belonged to the other guy. And so he stopped him. Roosevelt said, hold on a second. That should be Lang's brand that goes on that steer. And the cowboys kind of said, well, that's all right, boss. And he said, no, but you're, you're putting on my brand. And the man kind of you know, smiled slyly and said, that's right, boss. 
to which Roosevelt said to the man's surprise, he said, you drop that iron and get out of here. Get out of here. We don't want you around here anymore. And then this, I, so insightful, he said, a man who will steal for me will also steal from me. Boaz would have the same kind of an ethic, that same commitment to integrity. He knew his own integrity was too important to compromise, even, even if he could get away with it. I think that's the part that really stands out to me in this chapter. He could have got away with it. He could have got away with it. We need to have the same approach because the truth is we face situations like this, right? We face them ourselves. I was going to say all the time, but I don't know if it's all the time. It would be almost easier if it was all the time. Instead, they sneak up on us. They come up periodically, right? And sometimes you don't even realize you're in one until you're deep into it. These situations where we have our own version of a temptation to compromise our integrity. So it might have to do with so many possibilities. Maybe it's, it's the price we charge for something. Right? We have the possibility where we could charge more than a fair price. Or maybe it has to do with uh, you know, what we write down on the time card. Right? We, we worked this much, but we write down that we worked that much. You know, something like that. Or maybe it has to do with, with social media. You know, what are we going to post there? You know, is, it, is it true? Well, it sounds true. It's the kind of thing that would be true. Even if it didn't happen, I'm going to post it anyway. Now, that, that's an integrity issue. Maybe you're a student. You got a paper due tomorrow and you kind of forgot about it. And boy, you know, you could just plug in a few things into chat GPT and boom, that thing's all done for you. Isn't that what everybody's doing these days? That's what you get the impression in the news anyway. All kinds of opportunities, all kinds of, of ways when we're faced with temptations, temptations to, to compromise. And when we do, do this, protect your integrity. Make that choice. Choose what's right by choosing to protect your integrity. It's worth it. It's worth it. Finally, uh, the third principle that helps us choose what's right when we have the opportunity to do what's wrong uh, is to prize your purity. Prize your purity. Purity is, is a big part in this story, right? So we kind of circle back to that one now. You got the whole integrity issue with, with that other kinsman redeemer, and we'll pick that thread up next week. Uh, but then purity is, is at the heart of this story too. Like I said, it's a love story, and, and purity is a part of this. Purity is a, a hard thing to talk about these days. For the most part, the world laughs at it, right? The world in which you and I live laughs at purity. It's a, it's a quaint idea at best. If you don't believe me that the world laughs, watch any sitcom. Or maybe don't bother, but, but you could. Watch any sitcom. To the world, purity is literally a joke. So often it's a punchline. And yet from God's perspective, from the Lord's perspective, purity is a priceless treasure, And if we're going to be people of godly character, we need to value that treasure the way he does. We need to prize our own purity. And again, this is what we see Boaz doing. He's going to take a stand for purity in this chapter. And not just his own purity, but Ruth's purity too. He's going to protect both of them. Let's pick up in verse 14. And so he he tells her, lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning. But she arose before one could recognize another, and he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. He's going to protect her, her reputation. Talked about that last week. Verse 15, and he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. And so she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley, and he put it on her, in, in her garment, almost like a basket. And then she went into the city. She went back home to Naomi. The key to what I, re- I just read is what does not happen. The key is what does not happen. Again, picture this scene. Boaz is with a woman who wants to marry him. She's younger than he is. Like I said, she's probably in her mid to early 20s, early to mid 20s. He's older. We don't know how much older, but uh, older. Still young enough, though, that he's out working in the fields with his men and all the rest. 
She's wearing her best dress. She's cleaned up for the occasion. She smells nice. We're told she put on uh, her best perfume at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, she, she's, she's at her loveliest, and she's there with him. Uh, since Boaz has a pulse, he must have been tempted. Moreover, she needs him. Ruth has just opened herself up. Right? She's opened herself up by asking Boaz to take her into his home. She has made herself vulnerable. It would be very easy at this point for Boaz to take advantage of her. Right? If, he, if he pressured her, I, you don't usually talk this way, but he has all the power. Right? This older, powerful man, leader in the community. She's a widow. She's a foreigner. She's poor. He has all the power in this relationship. If he had pressured her to do something she should not do, it would be very, very hard for her in this scenario to say no. On top of that, Ruth has been married before. Right? Remember, she's a widow, not a maiden. And so the matter of her virginity, so important in that culture, that's not an obstacle either. And it's dark. And nobody knows she's there. And they're all alone. And if they were careful, if they were quiet, no one would ever know what happened between them. With all of that, what does Boaz do? What happens that night between Ruth and Boaz? The answer is nothing. Nothing happens that night between Ruth and Boaz. And the reason nothing happens is that Boaz prizes purity. And by the way, Ruth does too. I don't mean to leave Ruth out of this discussion, but the way the passage unfolds, Ruth has placed herself in his care, right? She has placed herself in his care by offering herself to him in marriage. And so the responsibility in this dynamic now is on Boaz. He needs to be the leader in this relationship protecting their purity. Uh, Men, Clock that. Take note of that, men. Right? There's a biblical principle here. If a woman has, has made herself available to you in a romantic way, and I don't even mean sexually necessarily, but she has just given her heart to you, you are now responsible. Right? You're, you're, we're, we're responsible for that. And so he's the one who has to carry the water on this, if you will. And I don't mean she's also a godly, pure woman. It's so obvious. He even testifies to it a few times. But, but he's going to prize purity, his and hers. He's going to prize purity more than he prizes temporary pleasure. It stands out. Let me quote John Piper again. This is from that same book I've quoted a few times along the way, Sweet and Bitter Providence. I love how he describes this moment. Those of you who know Piper, he's not usually this romantic, but listen to how he describes this moment right here between Ruth and Boaz. This is Piper. The stars are beautiful overhead. It is midnight. He desires her She desires him. They are alone. She is under his cloak, and he stops it for the sake of righteousness and does not touch her. What a man. What a woman. And then Piper brings it contemporary. He continues, the mood of American life today is, if it feels good, do it, and away with guilt-producing puritanical principles of chastity and faithfulness. But I say to you who are unmarried, Piper writes, if the stars are shining in their beauty and your blood is thudding like a hammer and you are safe in the privacy of your place, stop for the sake of righteousness. Let the morning dawn on your purity. In Christ, there's forgiveness. I gotta gotta go gospel. In Jesus Christ, there's forgiveness. The Lord cleanses us when we come to him with broken and contrite hearts for our sin. And so there's forgiveness for those who fall into sexual sin. Please hear and know that. But it's better not to fall in the first place. 
those who are single, you, you need to hear that. Though, frankly, we all need to hear it. So forget that those who are single. We all need to hear that. It's better not to fall in the first place. It's better to choose what is right by choosing to prize our purity. I started with the president. Let's close with baseball. Uh, years ago, uh, the, uh, the Baltimore Orioles were playing in a game, and uh, they're having a good year this way, by the way. Uh, the Orioles are doing real well. But this was years ago. This was actually back in the late 70s, early 80s, when Earl Weaver was, uh, was the manager, one of the more colorful managers from uh, MLB's history. And so it was, a, it was a game, it was late in the game, and the Orioles were... Uh, they actually had a guy named Ross Grimsley. I don't know if anybody remembers Ross Grimsley. Ross Grimsley was pitching for the O's that day, and it was not going well. He was a pretty good pitcher, but not that day. He was just getting knocked around really hard by the other team. They were scoring, bases loaded, all that kind of stuff. Finally, the Weaver couldn't have any more of it. He called a timeout, and he, he kind of did the manager's slow walk, right? That slow walk out to the mound like they do. And he finally, he gets up to the, to the mound where the pitcher's just been suffering out there, and Weaver gets out there. He says, well, Ross, if you know how to cheat, this would be a good time to start. <laughs> It's kind of funny because it's baseball. Baseball fans know it's part of the game. I mean, they steal bases, they steal signs. It's just how baseball is played. But when it comes to real life, there's never a good time. Never a good time to cheat. Never a good time to lie. Never a good time to steal or manipulate someone or sleep around. When it comes to real life, the life of a, of a disciple of Jesus Christ, there is never a good time for us to compromise our character. Would you pray with me, please? Let's ask the Lord's help in this. Lord, we worship you. You are, uh, you, all of this emanates from your character. You are holy. You are pure. You are perfectly good. Uh, you are always true, always pure, always good. There is no untruth in you, no lie, no falsehood, nothing like that. And you call those you call to yourself, you call us to imitate you. You say both in the old covenant and in the new to be holy because you are holy. And so we pray, Lord, that you would do that in us. Please help us. Please help us, Holy Spirit. We cannot, we freely and uh, eagerly confess that we cannot do this on our own. If we try to do this in our own power, it is mere moralism. Uh, but we don't want to settle for mere moralism. We want spirit-empowered gospel. We want sanctification to be taking place in our own lives and in one another's lives. And so we pray that you would give us this mindset, a mindset that prizes our purity, that protects our integrity, and that puts you first uh, in all of the situations we find ourselves, whether they're ambiguous or crystal clear, whatever it is, help us to follow you and live for you by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.